right, turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians. It's the last time we're going to do that. I mean, to, <laughs> it, well, let, me, let me just rephrase that. It just, it's not like we're never going to go back to 2 Corinthians. But last week we began this final entry in our series through this second inspired letter to the church meeting in the city of Corinth. And my intention was to complete this series last week, um, but uh, I didn't quite make it through the whole sermon. Um, as it turns out, and I know it's a surprise to some of you, I have very poor time management skills. And uh, <laughs> But since we are <clears throat> building on last week's installment, um, and you're only going to get half a sermon today, there'll be a... a the, There'll be a, a rebate from the offering, and um, just wait for it at your home. We'll send you half the offering back, as you're only going to get half a sermon. No. <laughs> you just wait for that. And um, if I don't have your address, well, I'm really sorry about that. If you want to give it to me after the service, um, let's just move on. So since we're building on last week's installment, <laughs> I shouldn't go off script. Or we'll be finishing this next week. <laughs> I'm going to skip the introduction. I'm going to jump right into the text. Let's do that. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. Second Corinthians 13, whole chapter on the first verse. This is the third time I'm com- I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you, as if I were present the second time, and being absent, now I write to to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other, that if I come again, I will not spare, since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you, for though I was crucified, for though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God, for we also are weak in him but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? For I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, Not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and ye are strong, and this also we wish, even your perfection. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a with an holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, this passage that does so powerfully challenge us to examine ourselves and to prove our faith. We just pray, Lord, if there's someone here today that um, has not been born into your family, that through their examination they would find their need 
to accept Christ as their Savior. And God, for those of us who have been born into your family and perhaps just need a reminder of the authenticity of our faith that might inspire us to live more like you. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would do that work as well. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we did walk determinatively through the opening verses of this text. And we discovered there this clear imperative. Every professing Christian must prove his faith. We see that command in verse 5. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except ye be reprobates. That idea of of reprobation um, is simply means not approved by God. Turns out there is only one thing that is approved by God, and that is his own righteousness. If you are dressed in yours, not approved. If you are dressed in his, you are approved. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There is one currency in heaven, and it is righteousness. The only righteousness that is accepted is that of Jesus Christ. And so the Bible commands us to examine ourselves and prove our faith. And so every professing Christian must do that, must prove our faith. This command to prove our faith is demonstratively uh, an important one. It's so important that we spent our entire time last week covering the motivation for obeying it. We, uh, when we see a command in Scripture, we look for why we might obey that command. And as I've said before, yeah, I know God said it and that ought to be good enough, right? But uh, aren't you glad that God does come down uh, to our level in his explanation of his commands many times and gives us added motivation to obey them? And we find that motivation right here within the scriptures. And, and last week we saw... Don't worry, I'm not going to preach all of last week's sermon, but I got a review, right? Just real quick. Three very simple points. One in verse 5, because of the eternal consequences. We must prove our faith. We must examine ourselves and prove our faith, number one, because of the eternal consequences. Now, this isn't just something as to whether you're going to be qualified to get into a college or something like that. This is about eternity here. This is about heaven and hell. The stakes don't get any higher than this. So, checking yourself every now and then and making sure, is what I have trusted in, what God puts forth as the only way to have an eternal relationship with Him. And so we must examine ourselves and prove our faith. The eternal consequences are too high not to obey this command. So that's the first motivation that we have. The second motivation that we see in our text is in verse 9, in which we see it says, For we are glad when when we are weak and ye are strong, and this also we wish even your perfection. We see that word perfection in the old King James English, and, and uh, it's one that reminds us of the wholeness to which we are called 
in the body of Christ. And there is a, there, there is a, a special wholeness in being sure of our salvation. I wonder if, if I should do this. Um, just be completely honest. Since you have, uh, since you had a salvation experience, how many have doubted your salvation? It's pretty much. I mean, yeah, I have. I can see my hands up. Um, <laughs> is that a good feeling or a bad feeling? Oh, that's a terrible feeling, isn't it? <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing worse than that fractured feeling of wondering. I wonder if I'm saved or not. And chances are. That fractured feeling and that, that terrible doubt that comes is simply because you know you're not good enough. I mean, at least down deep inside, maybe you're trying to convince yourself, I'm good enough, I'm good enough. You do the Oprah Winfrey thing or something, stand in the mirror and tell yourself that you're good enough. Um, look, <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but... But, you know, down deep inside, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm, I mean, God's perfect. His standard is perfect. I'm not perfect, right? <laughs> but when you go to the pages of Scripture looking for assurance and you find out or you remember, you know what? <laughs> it wasn't about me being good enough. I never was good enough. <laughs> That's why I needed Jesus. And if you can recall placing your entire faith in the work and righteousness of Jesus Christ for your salvation, there's a wholeness that results in the assurance that comes from knowing that Jesus Christ did indeed pay it all. And to know, He requires work of me, but the work of salvation is finished. There's a wholeness to that that comes from assurance. And so that's a great motivation to examine yourself and prove your faith so that you might be sure of your relationship with God and the and the strong foundation upon which it is built. So we must have a proven faith. We must prove our faith because of the eternal consequences, because of the wholeness of assurance, and then last of all, because of the unity of proven faith. The unity of proven faith. You can see it in verse 11, in which we see in this kind of uh, beginning of the farewell series, he says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind, he says. Be of one mind. That's interesting. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. There seems to be conveyed here this idea that if you are born into God's family, that you have the, the capacity for having the same mind in you as every other person born into God's family. Is that, is that an accurate statement from Scripture? It is. Because as it turns out, I have Christ. He liveth in me. Right? See, I went into, uh, into the, uh, the old English hymn. The, the fact is, that, that's, a, that's a wonderful motivation to examine ourselves because of the unity that results from all of us having Christ living in us. Much church division comes 
from everyone having a mind of their own. And, you know, it kind of seems good. Sometimes we might even brag about, well, I got a mind of my own. Uh, Well, that's good. I understand that. But in church, we're all supposed to have the mind of Christ. All right? So um, it's not that we are just submitting to everyone else, although there's a certain uh, amount of that. The Bible actually does command us and, and to, to be subject one to another. But, but uh, what unifies us truly is that we have the mind of Christ, that we can set ourselves aside. We have the capacity to let Christ drive us and guide us forward. And when we do that, when we surrender all and we let Christ guide us with the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, we are of one mind and the church moves as one. And that um, is one of the great motivations. You know, there's a lot said about unity uh, nowadays. And I would just remind you of this. There's one way to actually get unity. That is for all of us to get on the same page. Right? For all of us to surrender our own ideas or whatever we want to believe and say, you know what? I'm going to surrender to the mind of Christ. I'm going to surrender to the Holy Spirit who is never separated from this book. Um, Okay, so we've seen the motivations of the Holy Spirit uh, that, that, that he gives us in the text for why we must prove our faith. And so let's now look to the practical means by which we might prove our faith. And for this, we go back to our text. Um, How can we do this? How can we examine ourselves and prove our faith? Look first to the beginning of the chapter and see how Paul references the witnesses, the the witness of other Christians. Um, Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. He says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to um, them which heretofore have sinned and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. That seems kind of severe and, and maybe you don't see the connection. But let me let me uh, draw a line between the two dots here. All right. Paul is talking about... Um, Authentic faith. He's in the context of defending his own faith, and you see how he does that, and that's some of how we get this. But he's also applying this uh, the same standard to them. You see him in the text going back to them, saying, "Well, I sure hope that your faith is authentic." Now, whether whether mine be found inauthentic or not, in other words, whether we be reprobates or not, I, I hope that you find your faith to be authentic. He's kind of putting back on them some of the same accusations that had been levied against him. And he says um, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. The context here is the sin that plagues the lives of some of the Christians in the church in Corinth. Um, Paul was going to hold them to account if they were still in sin when he got there. And Paul's suggestion is that there will be some other Christians who will be part of any decision about their continued participation in the body of Christ. It's almost like a jury system. Did you see that in the, in the presence of two or three witnesses? It's almost like a jury system. And it's set up only with those who are part of the body themselves. 
The implication is that we do have a responsibility to maintain purity within the body of Christ and thereby have not only the right but also the mandate to address other Christians who are wayward in the faith. Now, you say, I don't really like this part of the sermon. I don't like the idea of Christians telling me what I'm doing wrong, right? It's okay, you're not supposed to like it. Um, (laughs) And by the way, if you like it, like telling other people about what they're doing wrong, you should probably stop because you probably have something stuck in your eye, if you know what I mean. Um, there's a system, this is a system that Jesus himself set up. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16 says, But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. See, there's a certain accountability that Jesus put into the design of the church so that what other Christians say about my spiritual life matters, right? I know, we, we love to say, I, I just love to debunk every common phrase, I guess. Maybe it's just my personality. We love to say, well, I don't care what people say. I don't care what people think about me. Well, you ought to, you know? Um, no, they're not always right. We'll get to that. But uh, you, you ought to care, right? <laughs> you, you ought to pay attention to it. This, t- uh, this tells us that we should respect the witness of other Christians, as we're looking to examine ourselves and prove our faith, prove it to be authentic, we should respect the witness of other Christians. And that's the first practical step. You see, our natural tendency might be to tell another Christian who comes to you with uh, spiritual advice to um, mind their own business, right? you got to get the head shake in there when you say that. Mind your own business, right? Well... <laughs> I'm pretty sure anyway. That's how, see, but, but see, uh, th- that's not how God intended us to live. We know that our brothers and sisters in Christ aren't perfect and they're not flawless. But they do have a responsibility, as do you, to watch for danger in the lives of the family. Part of our examination of our faith should then respect the witness of other Christians. Do other Christians witness of your genuine faith, or is there doubt there? Have you been advised by other Christians to check your authenticity? Respect the advice, all right? It may be mistaken. How many of you have been mistaken? Good. The rest of you have some pride issues you need to deal with. But it... (laughs) That advice may be mistaken. Acknowledge that, but don't disrespect the advice. It should be taken seriously. It should be weighed with great deliberation. After all, this is how God intended the body of Christ to live and grow and sharpen each other. And now, we know there's a problem with hypocrisy in some who would point out sins in other people, right? Uh, Y'all know people like that? Don't look around. Y'all know? (laughs) Um, You know, there's there's a problem with hypocrisy in some who might point out sins in other people. And the fact is, Jesus addressed that too. He says, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. 
However, when approached by a brother or a sister who is imperfect, which would be any brother or sister, okay, we should not automatically discount their criticism. We should weigh it and examine ourselves. This is a healthy exercise. It's a joy to rediscover your own authentic faith. Respect the witness of other Christians. Understanding that we are meant to sharpen each other. And we don't always have to be right in order to accomplish that. Now look at how Paul identifies with Christ in his defense of his own apostleship. Um, This gives us some wisdom about proving our faith. And it is the next practical step. Recognize the likeness of Christ in you. Remember what we're doing here. We're examining ourselves and we're proving our faith. We're trying to de- determine whether our faith is authentic. And, uh, and recognizing the likeness of Christ in you is very important. Verses 3 through 5 is very clear on this. Um, as Paul defends himself, he says, Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, um, so that's the context of this, and he goes through uh, through verse 5. Elaborating on that, Paul specifically identified with the humility of Christ and the way Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Why don't you do this? As you examine yourselves and prove your faith, look into the mirror of God's word and see. Is there... An inner passion to live in the way Christ lived on earth, selflessly, selflessly. I almost said, I sounded like I said, I mixed selfishly and selflessly, right? And that's what we do as Christians. We, <laughs> no, we, but Christ lived sacrificially. He lived selflessly. And if you look in the mirror of God's word and you see no desire to live like that, you should be sure that he is there at all because he desires to live like that. Perhaps he's been quenched by selfish desires. Paul warns against that in his letter to the church in Thessalonica. He says, quench not the spirit. Nevertheless, we should do the investigation. Is Christ in me? Is he actively motivating me to live as he lived? You can see this taking place in different situations in life. Does he he rise up in indignation when I move towards that which is sinful in life? Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. You move towards that which is sinful, you can, you, you can feel him rising up inside of you. I'm not talking about like a physical thing, but you know what's going on. It's, all, it's, it's the Holy Spirit saying, what are you doing? Why are you going that way? You know good and well you're only going that way to make provision for sin. Does he inspire in me a desire for purity and holiness in my daily living? Understand, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't shirk his job. He does that. He puts inside of us this desire to live holy and, and purely in our lives. Does, does his love and his compassion well up inside of me when I see the needy and the lost? Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. Is he... He he has a love for the needy and for the lost. 
do I rejoice at the opportunity to sacrifice selflessly for the eternal benefit of others? These are signs of Christ in us. And seeing them will affirm your faith and prove to you that what you have is real. They're part of the case that we must all build as proof of our authentic faith. And if we are truly saved and we have Christ in us and identifying the likeness of the Son of God in our own decrepit shell of humanity should be like finding a diamond in the dust. I mean, it'll stand out. Let me tell you this, that even the backslidden child of God I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this one. Can see the likeness of Christ in themselves. It's that element of absolute misery and disapproval that reigns and passionately fights our bad decisions when we're not doing his will. Can you identify with that? You've you got to realize, what is God's primary characteristic? It is holiness. It is, what, it is what primarily defines him. When the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is identified as the Holy Spirit because he is God, and his primary characteristic didn't change when he came down to live inside of your body. So as he is primarily holy, above all else, God is holy. And if he lives inside of you, why would you expect to feel good when you sin? <laughs> no, that misery, that deep feeling of disapproval, that's a God thing. And it is to some extent... A sign of authentic faith. Now don't you go out sinning to see if you feel bad, alright? You <laughs> but you but you know that misery, that feeling of absolute personal fault, knowing that you've quenched the spirit. That same powerful influence for discomfort becomes the greatest joy and comfort when we're doing his will. There's a point to this great contrast of misery and joy in your life, both of which have the same source. The point is for you and I to choose the joy rather than the despair and to live as he commands us to live. Look for his likeness in yourself. And if you see none there, if instead you see an impunity in your sinful life and a casualness to unholy habits, you might rightly question the authenticity of your faith. Closely related but specifically pointed out is this next item. And I want you to see it in verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and eight. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest. Do you see that? Though we be as reprobates. In other words, I want your faith to be genuine, to come 
from a, a, an honest heart of service for God, not just to please me. He said, if I turn out to be complete reprobate, which, by the way, I'm not, the Apostle Paul says, um, I want you to be uh, honest in your faith and to discover honesty. Um, do that which is honest. And he says, for we can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. In other words, if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you have a capacity to live transparently. What do you think about what a concept of that is? There's so many Christians that don't know the joy of living with nothing to hide. I'll tell you what. That is, that is quite the joy. And, and when you have Christ in you, you have that capacity because the, the, the Holy Spirit leads with complete transparency. We can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. That is, the, the new life that is born inside of us, it is wholly transparent and completely honest. So much of what we do, and, and this, by the way, this third step is review the honesty of your walk. As you, as you research and examine yourself and prove your faith, then um, review the honesty of your walk. So much of what we do in this life is for show. I mean, it is, right? Um, and by the way, not all of that is bad. I wore a suit today for show. It's not a bad thing. I mean, you know that I'm serious about what I'm doing, delivering the word of God to you, right? Because I dressed up for it, right? I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that, but maybe it communicates that idea to you. That's the intent. That's why I dress up. It's a little bit for show, but it, there's some meaning to it. We are putting on a show, and, and we should gladly complement our profession of faith with disciplines that are impressive, I'm not saying y'all should wear suits, all right? That's not, not the, the point. That was just illustration. But if those disciplines have no root in our actual relationship with Christ, then all we're doing is acting. This can become such a way of life for some that they have trouble telling the difference anymore to what is real and what is affected. You can, you can uh, and, and maybe you're fully aware of this, you can look like a Christian and walk like a Christian, and to everyone that is a Christian that knows you, you might look like the ideal Christian. But down deep inside, in the misery of your own heart, you know that it's just a show. Beloved, let us review the honesty of our walk. For our discovery in our examination is that there's a bunch of hidden practices and patterns in our lives that do not complement the gospel. We have a problem. Our walk should be one of transparency and honesty. You see, God is truth. He's the very standard of it. He's the standard of all that is honest. And for us to stamp his name on our lives and then live duplicitously is an abomination and a disgrace to him.
If it's all we've ever known in this faith, then perhaps we should question our faith. If all we've ever known is duplicitous living. Now, understand this. Duplicitous living. That's a word that simply means um, you're two different people in two different places. All right? And duplicitous living is not absolute proof of inauthentic faith. But it's one of the signs. Something to pay attention to. As a matter of fact, the duplicitous living is all that a lost person, is all to which a lost person can aspire in the realm of Christianity. The practical helps of Scripture are designed for the regenerate, you see. And yeah, you can apply Christian truths to a group of people who don't know Christ as their Savior and don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, and it'll be some limited benefit because God's way works better than man's way. But his truths are designed for the regenerate, and what will result is duplicitous living. They will only show limited success among those who do not have the Holy Spirit inside of them. Sometimes, though, the child of God gets led aside and deceived by sin. And they allow the strongholds of Satan to be set up within the boundaries of God's kingdom. And if you know yourself to be a child of God and are living a less than honest life, You should rid yourself of the closeted activity and step into the warmth of transparency. And and I always say, I am not telling you to hang out your dirty laundry for everyone to see. That's not the kind of transparency that God is asking for in your life. Get rid of the dirty laundry, <laughs> right? That, that's the kind of transparency that really will set you free. Live a life so that examination is a joy. There's not, nothing so freeing and so pleasant as knowing that you have nothing to hide. Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, He said, let us walk honestly as in the day. Isn't that a great way to think about the Christian life? Act like the light's on, all right? (laughs) Character is what you are in the dark. Live like you're in the day. Walk honestly as in the day. Not Not in rioting and drunkenness. Not in chambering and wantonness. That is, don't be hiding a different life. Not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. That is the test. If you have Christ in you, if your faith is true and you are born of God, then you have the capacity to live honestly and transparently. You shouldn't have to bury or closet a portion of your life. A holy, transparent life is a sign of authentic faith. Look now to this last proof of authenticity and a great practical help. Reinforce relationships with other Christians. 
You see it in verses 12 through 14. You actually see it a little bit in verse 11 also. And we see the emphasis on relationships that Paul stresses in this this last little passage. And what is framed as the, the closing farewells and the do-wells of the letter is also a glimpse of how things ought to be in the Christian life. We were not born as an only child into the family of God. You realize that? We are designed for dependency and fellowship with each other. The way Paul encourages this is to tell them to greet each other with a holy kiss. So we're going to have an activity after church. Just kidding. As a teenager, I always thought this one was funny. Um, the preacher always used to make sure we understood that that was a cultural thing. We're in America. We shake hands. But So, don't worry. We're not going to do a practice session today. Yeah, actually, I'm not too late. I'm going to go a little bit over, but not too much. I saw a line of ants in the bathroom wall today, and um, I noticed something about them. Maybe you've noticed this about ants. They, you see them go in both directions, and they, they stop and kiss each other. You notice that? Surely you've watched ants before. With or without a magnifying glass, you've watched them, and, they, and they, they stop and kiss each other, and then they go to the next one, and they kiss him, and they kiss him, and they, you know? I always wonder, what on earth are they doing? Now, um, no, I know, they're not kissing each other, but, you know, you're bumping noses. It's pretty close in my book. You try to bump noses with me, I'm going to think you tried to kiss me, all right? So that's what it looks like they're doing. Um, so here's the thing. I thought, this must be a God thing. Because I just put the finishing touches on my sermon, especially on that last point. And here God's showing me the, all these ants, they're accomplishing something. I don't know what they're after. But they were all greeting each other with, you know, a holy kiss. So... <clears throat> I thought, God wants me to do some deep research on this before the sermon. <laughs> and so I did. The Bible says, go to the ant, thou sluggard. So, I mean, that there's got to be some, some good in what, what I'm going to find here. So I, I, uh, um, I went to that holy receptacle of all biblical knowledge. <laughs> and I said... Siri, why do ants greet each other? <laughs> well, I found a couple of ridiculous things. Um, some involving little miniature microphones. I don't think that's actually true. But then I found one <laughs> scientific article <laughs> in which, it, as it turns out, ants from different, uh, is it hives? Colonies. 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 Have different smells. And, it, and if two ants run into each other that have different, uh, who said, you said pheromone? Yeah, it's like a little pheromone that they have on them. And they notice each other uh, and that they don't smell the same, then that uh, they're not going to work together, okay? I think it said they usually fight to the death, but that, that's, <laughs> that part's not applicable to the Christian life. All right. But, but when you see them, 
When you see them in a line going back and forth and just bumping noses, that's usually what they're doing is they're just, are you from, are you from here? Yep, you're from here too, good. Yeah, same colony? You, yep. you know, they're just, they're recognizing that they all smell the same. Now, I did read a little bit further and find out that they also have two stomachs. One is for themselves, and the other is called a social stomach. And you find one ant, and he bumps in uh, into the other one, and he uses his little mandible to tap him on the side a little bit. And what he's saying is, hey, you got something for me to eat? I'm kind of wasted here. I'm kind of tired, and I'm not going to make it back to the colony. And so... Um, the one, the other ant will say, oh, yeah, no problem. I have something in my social stomach for you. And he vomits into the mouth of the ant. That just... <laughs> Which is really kind and generous. And so then that ant will go back to the colony um, on the fuel that was given him through the social stomach of the other ant. <laughs> Okay, now I'm going to do my best to make an application. (laughs) You see, as it turns out, God has built living creatures uh, with uh, some similar designs. And as God's family, it is his intent that we make the quick connection. Sometimes maybe even to help replenish another child of God and you know thank you Lord that we don't have to do that by means of a social stomach but (laughs) where was I so the (laughs) the obvious intent here is that we are to purposefully reinforce our relationships with each other you know we have handshaking times in church on occasion for the purpose of making that contact, reinforcing those relationships. And I'll give you this, it isn't much, right? Sometimes we might even question the profit of it. But here's the, here is the truth. This is just the social truth of it, all right? Um, I lost my place, just give me a second. <laughs> Small acknowledgments, I found it, small acknowledgments of deeper relationships are important in the human psyche. They remind us that we have a connection. And that reminder is important, not because it was a significant reminder, but because of what it reminded us of is important. And significant. Follow the pattern of that activity. Make that quick connection. It doesn't take much from you, but it might mean a lot to someone else and to yourself as well. The holy kiss is just that. It's a quick expression of affinity. I don't think I need to remind you that in our culture, that is more practically applicable as a handshake. And if you go in for a holy kiss, you might be reminded that that is not a valid application. Okay, look now at the next verse. Verse uh, 13, all the saints salute you. 
Paul gives this long-distance example of the instruction that he's just given. Our relationships are not all local. We've got missionaries who are extensions of our own family, and they need that connection with you as well. Some perhaps need it even more than those who live closer to us. In the closing verse, you can see the result of reinforced relationships. There is grace reaffirmed. There is love expressed. And then I'd like to point out this, that there is a communion between saints that is explainable only through the person of the Holy Spirit. And this communion, this relationship, is a constant reminder of the authenticity of our faith. And we must not neglect it. We must reinforce it. Maybe you're here today and appreciate the relationship that you have with someone else in this room. But you feel like there's something deeper to be had here. You see it in others and you hope for a part in that same type and quality of relationship. It may be that you need to be born into the family. It's a real spiritual event in which you come to that place in your heart where you recognize I have got nothing to offer God of any value. And God says, you don't need anything to offer me. I've already offered everything. And he he has offered you Jesus Christ as complete payment for all of your sin, past, present, and future. And not only that, the filthy rags of your righteousness may be exchanged for the pure, holy righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we have but to trust in Him alone for our salvation. And Jesus spoke of that as a new birth. The Bible says the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, you are quickened, and there's a new life born inside of you. And then you can begin to enjoy and reinforce the relationships between other members of the family. This challenge to examine ourselves and prove our faith is something that is profitable not only to those who have not yet come into the family, but it's profitable also for those of us who have been a part of it for a while. As perhaps the sin that has taken hold in your life has begun to cause doubt of your own salvation. That's usually what does it. Take these practical steps. Decide whether you are truly in the faith. And then realize, I can do something to not have this feeling of doubt anymore. And that is act like I'm in the faith. So I would challenge you to to take these practical steps. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Any step that God challenges you to take in life requires surrender. You're going to have to 
You're going to have to turn over your own will and surrender to his will. Why don't you stand as we sing, I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender. If you'd like to know more about being born into the family, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, placing all your faith wholly in him for your salvation, I would challenge you to come to the front, just sit in the front row. I'd be glad to show you from my Bible how you can um, be born into the family of God. And uh, child of God, if you examine yourself and see, yes, my faith is authentic. I have the signs, but I need to I need to act like it a little more so that I don't I don't doubt my salvation so much. And you make the decision God would have you to make as we sing that first stanza, all to Jesus I surrender. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily.